Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast celebrating how we define and create safety in a world without policing and prisons. I'm Damon. I'm Kiss. And we know why you're here. This is a big one. But before we hop into it, we got to do the thing. We got to bring in the one and only, the Grand Don Dada, our partner in decriminalization. <laughs> the one and only, Eva Nagal is here with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up, up, oh my up, God. Up, 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 up. Y'all are too much. Oh my God. <sighs> See, this is why you need to bring the boys to your city because they'll do this for you, y'all. Spirit fingers. <laughs> no, not everyone gets that intro. We'll give you a little taste, but yeah, yeah, of yeah. all the many reasons why I am sad that this is the last episode we're doing. I feel like we're really just coming into our own on the introductions for you in these last few episodes. Mm, And I feel like if we got, you know, 10, 15 more tries, (laughs) like we would have like audio equivalents of confetti and fireworks. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm committing right now in post to putting together some really dramatic intro okay. music for all you. Right, Can we do right. it one more time? So pretend we're just, we're going to bring you in <laughs> we one more time. just bring it in one okay? more time? Okay. All right, all right. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, and all identifying beings and spirits throughout the galaxy, we are presenting to you the one, the only, mm-hmm. the illustrious, the phenomenal, the brilliant, the compassionate, even the gal! Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I've never rolled my eyes so hard at you guys. <laughs> we deserve it. We, we crossed, deserve it. it, it we crossed the recording this Overton window, you think, there? Oh, yeah. Like, we're on the other side? Oh, yeah. Too much. Eva, it's, Too much. It's wonderful to see you and hear you. Before we get into who we're talking about today, uh, we have a tradition that we've done on a lot of Ergo episodes on our other show, and... I think we really need, before we go any farther, to do what what Damon has deemed, give you some gas. Because for the last two plus years, we have been working so closely and deliberately and joyfully with you. We didn't really know you before this project at all. Like we chatted a couple of times, you know, there was a lot of trust in who was putting us together. You know some good people. But the relationship and the type of collaboration that we've had with you has been, one, just super fun, and two, really a model of like what I would hope for in a collaborator moving forward. Oh, you've set the bar high. You've just really been a joy to get to know and to work with. So we will give you a chance to respond. (laughs) But before that, I just want to make sure that you receive our like deep, sincere thanks for all of the work and care and joy that you've poured into this project and all of the work you've done outside of that. But it's been such a joy to make this with you. So thank you. I'm just so happy that we've uh, come to the conclusion and the conclusion for the three of us is friendship, that we've made new friends in this process and new relationships and new people to call on and new projects. I mean, this is, I've said it and I'll say it again. I say it in the film, like the danger of Mariam Kaba is not the danger the whole world thinks. It is that when Mariam calls you into her living room, as she did for me some 20 odd years, no, I'm not that old. So, you know, so, <laughs> a minute ago, a minute ago, um, you know, decade ago, the danger is that you never leave this work, not with these kinds of relationships. So, you know, it's not goodbye. 
I don't even think it's goodbye to this this network of people that have grown up around one million experiments, which I think will continue to play with. And it's going to be the house with so many additions, you know, the goofy one on the end of the block. So I'm so happy. Um, Gazebo coming soon. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. So I am not as good at gassing as you all are. And I'm not as good at sound effects as you all are, but I am full of heart and just excited for what we will, <laughs> what we will think of next. We're fine on the gas and we're fine on the sound effects. The love is is received and appreciated. Yeah. And with that, let's do what we do. Who are we talking to today, Eva? Today, um, we <laughs> go full circle and welcome Miriam Kaba back into the lab. We started this project. We started this podcast, episode one, The Hypothesis with Miriam. And so we've you know asked our fellow struggling scientists to come back and figure out what has happened in these past two plus years? Um, for those of you coming into the lab today, Miriam Kaba, our dear friend and the co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization, is an educator, an organizer, and now a librarian, an archivist, yeah, yeah. who is active, <laughs> right? Who is active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice. She is the founder and director of Project Nia a grassroots abolitionist organization with a vision to end youth incarceration that we'll talk about in this episode. And Miriam's writing has appeared in numerous publications. She's even a crossword answer and numerous crosswords at this point. That's big. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know you have made it. Um, you might know her from her New York Times, a best-selling book, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. And Many, many other books, uh, two of which I want to shout out, her two children's books, Missing Daddy and See You Soon. If you haven't peeped those, I would definitely recommend it. All of Miriam's writing is worth a gander, and you can go and find out more at miriamkaba.com and even subscribe to her newsletter, which includes a monthly rant. It's a quality newsletter. I'm just <laughs> dipping my toe into the newsletter world. That's, that's what I'm on board for. I only got a couple. So go check um, out Let This Radicalize You as well. But definitely check out We Do This Till We Free Us because in there you will find an excerpt from an Ergo interview with the two of us. So we are in Miriam's New York Times bestselling book, which is one of our greatest accomplishments. <laughs> Happy to ride on her coattails. That's really <laughs> one of my great <laughs> one of my, my great commitments in life. Um, and speaking of riding on her coattails, uh, out of this idea that she built... We've made, of course, this podcast, but also this incredible film that we're going to be touring all of next year, all over this land and beyond. So if you have a place that you would like this film to live, uh, reach out to us at contact at respairmedia.com or go to millionexperiments.com slash documentary. Get in touch and let's make this happen. We're so excited to share this work and these words with you. We're coming to campuses. We're coming to organizations. We're coming to block clubs. We're coming to virtual talks. We're coming. We're here. Hit us up. I'll, I'll go to a backyard. I don't care. Yeah, man. We want people to see this movie. All right. Plugs out of the way. Let's hop into the lab with Mariam Kaba. All right, people, it's what we've all been waiting for. It is a, a special occurrence. We have gone through the cycle. Time is nothing but a flat circle. And we end <laughs> where we begin with the illustrious, the phenomenal, the ever wise, 
Mayor Macaba is back with us, everybody. Put up, put up, Hello, everybody. I'm back. <laughs> like, like you, you never, never left. left. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Conjoined at the hip, we are. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Miriam, it's a joy to have you back on the show with us as we close out. And I think, as always, let's start with the same two-part question we always start with, which is, in this time, however you define time, this hour, this day, this season, this lifetime, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Well, um, thank you again for having me. I Right now, I feel like I am not treating the world wonderfully um, because I'm feeling very pressured for time. I'm rushing uh, to complete several projects, put a lot of things to kind of rest. I think I may have mentioned this when we first talked at the beginning of this, but Project Nia, my organization that I founded and, and have been running for or entered our 15th year this fall, um, we are sunsetting actually in just a couple of weeks at the end of 2023. They tell you a lot that starting an organization um, is a lot of work and it's true. Um, but, you know, winding one down is also a lot of work. Um, it's different work, but it's also just a lot of tasks. So I've been trying to do that while also getting ready for um, a chrysalis year for uh, myself in 2024, which is involves also putting to bed a lot of other projects um, so that I can have a year of kind of stepping back from day-to-day work and focusing on some projects that I've been wanting to work on um, but have never had the time to do. So there's a lot going on. So how is the world treating me? I'm always feeling blessed. I'm so, so lucky in so many ways, um, given the state of the world that we have right now, um, the folks that are in the line of fire around the globe, in, in the Congo, in the Sudan, in Tigray, in Haiti, and um, most acutely at this moment in Palestine, um, I'm just paying so much attention to what's happening everywhere trying to think of ways that I can be helpful rather than feel helpless. Um, and so I think the world is treating me personally just fine. And I think the world is should be treating other people much, much better. One, I want to hop right into this notion of sunsetting and mm. what this has to teach us in this project of experimenting. But I have something that I need to address. I feel like I've done this before, but just for myself, because I've been in confusion. There has been, I feel like, an exponential explosion in the pronunciations of Miriam Kaba. And so I want to make sure, because someone asked me, and I was like, I don't know anymore. So is it Mir, Mare, or Mar? In terms of Miriam Kaba, okay. I, I cannot say your name wrong or in the way that you don't prefer. You just said it the right way, um, okay. which is the which right one though, Miriam, because Miriam, okay. that is the way most people who are USians pronounce my name. Okay, Miriam, and so okay. that's fine. That's now, fine. my family mm-hmm. says Mariam. Ah. Because that's that's cooler. Mariam is like the kind of Frenchified, West Africanified version of what you just saw. 
So Mayam okay. is the way like my mom calls me. When my mom calls me by my name, she usually, you know, <laughs> she like whatever. But also the other thing is the people who know me for a very long time, who are my close friends call me MK. And so do some of my siblings. So it just, you know, it's all fine. You you have the right pronunciation. <laughs> all right. All right. You heard it here I, first. I, folks. I had heard it a few other ways and I was yeah, getting nervous. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the all right. Miriam. All right. Yes, yes. I'm like, that sounds wrong, but that was getting corrected. So maybe I'm wrong, but I'm second guessing myself inappropriately. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it up. Really appreciate it. <laughs> the streets are called. <laughs> have a great Christmas year. <laughs> now we know what to, to call it. All right. I do actually want to open up with with you know where you checked in on uh because so much of this project is about encouraging inspiring pushing sharing struggling with folks to create to birth new projects in the world mm-hmm. um and i want to say you make sunsetting and hiatus look really cool like that's the <laughs> new hot thing on the streets um and so i want to talk about the reflections or the the analysis that goes into the decision that it is time to let this rest or time to set this down. Uh, Daniel often quotes the, the the bogs of like, we need to wear our containers and even sometimes our ideologies, like a garment that can be released when needed. And so, yeah, what, what have you learned as approaching this notion of sunsetting? And is there anything you would like to share for other experimenters out there who are birthing projects of what that uh, almost death dueling might look like, if that oh, feels appropriate? Yeah. I believe in organizations being dynamic organisms. I really, really strongly believe that organizations should die, that it is not reasonable for a container that gets built by a group of people to exist in perpetuity. Why should that be the case? We never are in the same political context from where we started we usually don't have the exact same people working in those spaces. Everything transitions and changes. The only thing that's certain about humanity and human life is that you are born and then you die. Those are the two things we can't escape as human beings. I think it's the same for organizations and containers and experiences that they have to end And I have felt and I am trying to model in some way that it's okay and good, actually, to try to end in what I would call in a good way. I started Project Nia with a notion of potentially five years. Everything I make, I try to do within a five-year window. And by year three of the five-year plan, I felt like we had accomplished most of the goals that I had set. I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do next after this? I was already really thinking along those lines. But what ended up happening is that my vision um, and my initial ideas were exceeded every time somebody new came on board. So it was because new people came in with their passion, creativity, ideas, thoughts, that my initial shrunken vision of what I was going to try to do got way exceeded by the actual labor ideas and enthusiasm of the young people who joined. And so I just kind of kept it going along those lines. And by honestly, by year 10, I was like, well, I feel like we definitely exceeded what I initially thought. 
I think we've even done most of the things that the people who were part of our work have actually also conceived of. And it would be good to get out of the way. Now the things that didn't exist that I hoped to see exist. And some of the seeds that I feel like I and this container helped to develop were blossoming in other places. I felt like it was a good time to start dismantling that work. And then 2020 happened and we were in demand again in a different way. And space was needed for young organizers. And, you know, we did these uh, virtual youth organizing institutes that had so many applications and so few slots that we can offer. And so we were still relevant. But then I put my foot down and said, we are definitely sunsetting at the end of 2023. And I have to put in place the steps to make sure we can do that in a good way. So we announced it to folks in a rolling way. I let the folks who were consultants on our work know so they could find new places and soft places to land. I began to tell the people who had funded us in the past that we were also going to be sunsetting. I stopped fundraising a couple of years ago. We have always been a fiscally sponsored project rather than a 501c3 ourselves by actual choice and decision. We weren't going to have to unravel a 501c3 organization, which is different than a fiscally sponsored one. And I wanted to spend at least part of this year doing some archiving of some of the things that we had done and also having conversations with some of the key people who helped to build this organization. And so Arda, who works for me as our communications person, has been working with Tom Callahan to put together an audio story of Project Nia. And we're going to share back the little audio stories and we're going to return that to everybody. We have like a little time capsule of the work we did together. When I think about Sunset, I don't just think about death because I don't think about death this way. I don't think about death as an ending. I think of death as transition to something we don't know. We don't know where our loved one's spirits go, but we know they're still with us because of the things we learned from them, because of the love that never goes away. If you do it right, people will feel a sense of maybe a little sadness at a certain point, but over time we'll really look back and think, well, I got so much from that experience. And while I'm grieving some things, it's because I had deep love that that grief remains. And so I think about that for organizations too. If you are doing it right, and if you are being conscientious, and if you are treating people with decency, then you can unroll what you've done and let it transition and not hold on so tightly for no reason at all other than perhaps fear or ego or a sense that this is something that we started so we can't end it. Or I don't know what people think about ongoing projects that to me need to move um, because there are new things that need to take its place. Maybe you have a better sense than I do, but it feels rare for this type of process to be able to happen, whether that's from the internal, that ego process or because when we were talking about this with uh, Andrea in the last episode, like the 
real world precarity of our experimentation, you know, whether that's the support, the resources dry up, whether that's the state clamps down or the front lash affects it in a way that keeps it from being able to perpetuate. And so- Oh, we all just bug out on each other. That, there's that too. <laughs> that's uh, definitely the third and often most popular option. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, what have you learned about the work you did before as you unroll it that you didn't realize at the time that you were doing it? Hmm. That's a really good question and a hard one for me because I think I've told you before that I'm not a particularly reflective person. Um, <laughs> Which is so hard to believe. I know. <laughs> Bringing you on here and being like, tell us how you think about all these things. Like, I'm, I'm just doing it, yeah. you know? It's really true. I feel like I don't spend that much time like looking back at my own work. I, I do spend a lot of time looking back at work that's in the lineage of the things I care about. You know, like I'm interested deeply in history. I'm just not interested in my own. As I've been listening to some cuts of the collective audio piece that Tom and Arda are working on, I've been so struck and moved to hear other people talk about Project Nia and myself. I think in ways that probably I just don't perceive. I, one person was saying, you know, they were doing working on a project with me and they were saying, you know, I want Miriam to give me feedback and she'll give me feedback. But then she'll say, really, this should be something that that you love. This should be about your passion, your creativity, like take it where you want it to go. And how that can feel overwhelming for somebody who wants you to just tell them what to do. I don't think I consciously see myself doing that, but it makes sense to me because my whole interest is in, I really do think that you have great ideas and I really do want your ideas to shine through and you bringing your best ideas to the mix is going to be wonderful because I don't have those ideas. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have your sense of like the world and the thing. And if it's a project you're passionate about, I trust you more than I trust me and my feedback on that. Like, I can give you some and I will, but does that really truly matter in the end? Like, are you feeling comfortable? Are you feeling great about this? I share that particular example because it was another kind of reminder. Like, it's not something I see myself doing. It's just something that I do. So looking back and hearing people's, interviews has been so instructive to me about like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that that was like a pattern of mine all the time, but it makes total sense that I am that way. Cause that's, that's how I, I see the importance of collaboration, particularly with young people. Cause a lot of the folks who came through Project Nia, they came through when they were very young. I now also, as we archive our website, I see how much we did. We did so much work. I don't think in the moment you notice all of it, but just seeing a lot of it now lined up in this way. And I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah. We did so much around policy. We did so much around training and, and popular and political education. We did so much around literal support of individual young people in conflict with the law. We, you know, helped to birth these other organizations that still exist now. Like, all of this work, and I, it's incredible to see it all laid out in this way for archiving for the future. And I don't think I recognized it in the moment. 
because there was no like master plan for everything. There was an initial structure. And then that structure grew and moved beyond itself. I'm, I'm taking in so much from this, right? Like, obviously, the, the age old lesson of you just have to value people and value people's humanity. And with that comes their ideas and their energy and meeting folks where they are. This notion of going with the flow and there not being a master plan. But what I'm really learning is this is why you get so much shit done because you're not mired down in self-reflection like I am. I'm, I'm still <laughs> drudging through the quicksand of memories of 2017 and April of 2016 and, and, and immobilized. Ruminator and in chief yeah, over here. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta, that is a, a big one is the, the no self-reflection. <laughs> I'm not saying you're, you're obviously self-reflecting, but. No, but really like not dwelling. Man, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Not Yikes. ruminating, not dwelling, not whatever, because I really do think yes to evaluation. Mm-hmm. But it's really important to for evaluation to be as a way for improvement of your project, not as a critical, self-critical, like that. who cares in the end about that? <laughs> you know, you want to look at what you did. You want to see it clearly, so <laughs> right? And then you want to be like, okay, so from here, how do we improve for the future? Not so that you sit around self-flagellating, you know, oh, bad Damon, bad Miriam, bad Eva. You know what? Like, no, no, because guess what? For the most part, again, people will be very unhappy about this because these are my politics and my, my values. But I don't believe in bad or good people. I think that people do bad things. And people do good things. And it's not about a self-regard of like how bad we are or how good we are. No, it's actually about our actions and how we take action in the world. We can change our actions. And through our actions changing, that means that we change alongside that as well. And that's why I don't believe that there are irredeemable souls out there, you know? I think that that really does weigh into the idea of self-reflection. It's like, well, self-reflection towards what end, actually? A narcissistic end? A self-punishing end? Or self-reflection in the sense of how are we going to improve the actual work that we are doing rather than all focused on your individual self all the time? And I think to me that has something to do with not sticking in a Western construct so much where the self becomes overwhelmingly of concern and we then don't actually look at actions and the things outside ourselves as equally or more important. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. This individual takes up all the space, all the oxygen. And it's like, um, y'all, we're social beings. And that means actually, you know, what's probably more important than preserving self is preserving the relationships that we have. Those are the currency. That's how we know we're human, is that we have to preserve our relationships. I don't think people take that shit seriously. And that can be true on like an individual, in quotes, level, and also, you know, to this larger conversation about sunsetting and organization and all that. Like, those get so bound up. You know, we have kind of like the popular nomenclature of founders syndrome or like this idea of you can't let it go. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, you know, because I've experienced it from the the other end, like 
as you do this unrolling of Project Nia, this is not a process of cutting off the relationships that have helped build that that work. You no, know? never, ever, ever. That's <laughs> what has been the best aspect of doing this work are the people I got to meet, to work with, to collaborate with, to love, to care for and care about. I will never let go of those. Those folks are coming along to the next thing. Eva's here. <laughs> Eva got connected to me through, I think, the Chicago Freedom School first, or then I drew Eva immediately into Project Nia work. And then, what, how many years later, we're still working together, but this time at Interrupting Criminalization. That is not abnormal. Lewis Wallace was my first volunteer at Project Nia. Wow. And it was because they saw a flyer up at a cafe in the community I lived in where I was telling people, are they interested in alternatives to policing and transformative justice? And do they want to come together and work on this project? And Lewis responded. And Lewis gave me a call from the cafe. And then we met at that same cafe the next day. And I was quitting my job that Friday. And Lewis came on as my first volunteer. And Lewis is now the abolition journalism fellow at Interrupting Criminalization 15 years later. It's a long-term investment of relationship and care and me really rooting for these young folks when they came through and wanting to see them develop into who they were going to be. And it didn't mean that they had to stay in organizing or stay in activism per se, you know, but it's that I care about them as human beings. I want them to be well and happy and to have a life that is fulfilling to them. And so it's the relationships that matter. And I can go through a long list of people that came through our work at Project Nia. I'm still connected to all of them, you know, and I will be. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, and the, the ripples of that are incredible. And, you know, in, in our own ways, I think we've both felt versions of that, Dame. Does that ring, oh, ring true? A hundred percent. I mean, through the first 100, 150 episodes of Ergo, we realize unintentionally that like a quarter of them uh were folks in this relationship network of mm -hmm. you know lewis I, I i saw a flyer or i saw a tweet and i showed up <laughs> and now look a decade later and i am i have committed my life in all of these different ways <laughs> to building these things and i just thought yeah. you know i want to do a good thing um as uh, as eva says in the film like be careful if you do abolitionist organizing, you might end up an abolitionist. <laughs> like it, it, it might it change the course of your life. I hope so. I hope so. That's really what the goal is. And it doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean you're going to be in a cookie cutter way of that. I also have young folks who come through the work who are like just fabulous parents to children who are so brilliant and are abolitionist babies who are growing up to be these people who are walking down the street saying, no police. Yeah, like, no 12. <laughs> no. If, you, if, you see or if, if somebody even with a with a, uh, a vest comes too close to Ori, he's going to side eye you <laughs> and say no 12. <laughs> From a or just he just doesn't yeah. like vests. Yeah, yeah, no. Anything that looks cop adjacent. It was like okay. some guy at a hotel one time who tried to give a pound. He, he asked permission, like, is he okay? Because he looks like a cop. <laughs> 
I thought you just I thought he just really had a commitment to sleep. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, I really like this distinction. It could feel very nuanced, but between reflection and evaluation as a way to process that moves us forward. And so I want to invite us into evaluation of this time. I think using one million experiments as kind of the proxy, because for us joining in to this decriminalization partnership and and building the show and the film One Million Experiments came in, in a lot of ways as a continuation of a suite we did on Ergo that you were obviously a part of called the Abolition Suite and wanting to go from the ideas to the practices. Um, and all of that was obviously informed by the opening that the 2020 uprising created for folks, right? So when we tell the story of women in experiments, we go to folks saw 2020 either in good or bad faith, then ask the question, what do we replace these institutions with? We don't need one replacement to death-making institutions. We need a million experiments. And now we're here. Um, you can tell that we've said that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we spit that out. And so now that we're here, we are approaching four years later. Um, and to me, it feels like we had a moment of capital A abolition talk going above ground in ways that were really contested. And now it feels like maybe not underground, but a, a somewhat back beneath the surface and folks who are committed and taking it seriously are the ones who are paying attention to it, as is usually the case. Um, and a lot of the chatter and buzz of the mainstream popularized moment has rescinded a little bit. That's my assessment. So you can also correct that. And as we obviously, you know, have you mentioned what's happening in Palestine, what's happening in the continent? There is a a, a new response and new resistance to state violence. But I think with us being in a little bit of a different time and pushing folks to experiment, how are you evaluating one in me and the fact that, you know, a hundred thousand people have listened to this podcast or a hundred thousand listens, a few people might listen a couple of times, um, but, you know, and, and folks have really said like, since this moment, I am now doing this. My food mutual aid project has now led to this long-term experiment that is building deeper relationships. How are you seeing this time? You won't be surprised here, I think, that like I pretty much disagree with most of how folks see movement <laughs> or movement <laughs> happening. Yeah. Um, there are moments in the whirlwind where you're in an activated space and it looks like so much is happening and everybody's supposedly in the streets and all of this stuff feels like live and maybe even exciting to folks and blah, blah, blah. And that comes and goes. There's not something that you can actually predict in advance. If you're smart and consistently organizing, you're prepared to meet the whirlwind. Um, and then during that time, you might, you know, have an activated opportunity to recruit more people or, you know, bring more ideas that folks were willing to take up. Uh, Naomi Klein said this years ago about like, you want to be organizing so that when the whirlwind moments exist, one of the things that people pick up are the things you've been organizing. Mm -hmm. Because people in moments of whirlwind look for stuff. Your job, if you're a consistent organizer who's consistently organizing across time, is to make sure that one of the things people pick up can be your thing in those moments, right? And so while we sunsetted for a bit, using that sunset analogy from a whirlwind moment, right now feels like another whirlwind moment we're in, global whirlwind moment around Palestine. 
I've noticed as somebody who started doing Palestine solidarity stuff when I was in college and kind of went to my first Palestine um, protest in like 91, I think it was, or 90. And there was like three of us at the protest. And then I was in Washington, D.C. for the big convening that was there. And I was in a crowd of 300,000 people. Could not believe, could not believe what I was seeing. I thought to myself, well, look at the years of Palestinian organizing and look at what it has brought forth. Does that mean that we built enough power to impose our will to get the U.S. imperialist regime to push the illegal Israeli apartheid regime to stop murdering civilians? No, it, it doesn't. Clearly, we're still in the fight for that. But I'm going to tell you that we are not where we were. Doxing, it was just a norm. It was not, it was more than that. You were just, you just didn't get jobs. And now when people are getting fired from jobs, there are places like Palestine Legal to contact. There's an infrastructure that got built over time that allows people to be able to go to those infrastructures now and be like, oh, I lost my job. What do you think I should do legally? I understand why it is that we can't see these things getting made, but it is by the testament of folks working on a consistent basis that they are getting made. And so, yes, if abolition is not on the cover of newspapers and magazines, is abolitionist organizing still taking place? Of course it is. And in deep rooted ways. I mean, I was just thinking about the other day, I heard somebody say that there are currently over a hundred non-police dependent interventions in the works being organized around the country right now. A hundred. Well, there weren't a hundred in 2000. Now, are you going to notice that? Probably not because you're not in it. You're not the one doing that work right now. But all of a sudden, in four years, when some other conflagration or whirlwind moment happens, we're like, oh, we're looking around for all these models and there will be dozens of them not just four or five to point to. Just getting a little closer to a million. Right? <laughs> Slow march yeah, toward yeah, a million. Exactly. Yeah. But where things did not exist, there will be things. And it's because people are working on them right now, quietly, in their communities, with people not putting the spotlight on them. And they're probably so grateful and thankful there is no spotlight on them because they're messing up all over the place. And they're in fights and they're trying to figure it out as you go on the ground. And that's because they learned something from 2020 and they are pulling those things in their hyper-local context right now and making those things every day. If there's something One Million Experiments, I hope, showed people is that there is work going on all the time, every minute, all the places, and you don't have to know about it. It's okay. You can know about a few things and then you should just do, make your own, do your own thing in your own community, according to your context and within your capacity. That's the message. Abolition is going nowhere. It's been here. It will be here. It is here now. So we're just doing our work, continuing to do our work to the best of our ability. We're sharpening our skills. Hopefully, we are building up our organization so they don't collapse under the weight of conflict on a regular basis. We're learning some damn skills about conflict mediation and transformation so that whatever happens the next time, we have sturdier and more resilient organizational containers and that we ourselves are sturdier and more resilient, less afraid of leaning into actual conflicts. Like we're just doing that. 
So I feel like that's my assessment of where we are right now. Um, it's that we're in process and that a whole bunch of people who were not thinking about abolition at all in 2020 are not just thinking about it. They're actually practicing. They're actually working. They're actually raising people in the world with new ideas and different ways of being. I think of Queenie's crew, which Zara came on here to talk with you all about. Just on a very micro level, thinking about all these caregivers and their small people coming together virtually for two years or so. We can't estimate where the influence of that is going to go in the next 10 years. I can't wait to see the Queenie Crew kids out in the streets protesting, but with an analysis that I could not have had at age 15, that they take for granted at age 15. Mm-hmm. It's it's not an unlearning. It's what they learned, you know. It's what it's not. They're not going to have this years of having to go back and be like, oh, everybody told me that you know I had to have police and prison, and now I have to think about as like no. It's going to be like from the beginning. Why this? This doesn't have to be like. Can you imagine if that had been your experience? Oh. How much further along we could have all been? I think about that all the time, but then I'm like, well, that wasn't the case. All right. You're taking me back to self-reflection, Mary. I mean, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn to get out of it. It's a delicate thing, dude. Like when, I, when I was 12, I, trust me, I think about this every day. So in agony. There's going to be so many people who aren't stuck and saddled with that. Yes. You know? Like, I don't even know what that's going to portend. But the possibilities are endless. I'm excited. I hope I'm around long enough to see the fruits of that. My goodness. Yeah. And and what's exciting about that as well is not only the ways in which they'll be equipped to respond to and resist institutional structures, but also not having to unlearn these toxic individualistic ways of anti-relationship building that we've had, all had to work through. So what does it look like to be practiced in holding someone's whole humanity or in being restorative? as you are going through puberty, right? Like at the time where you probably need it the most. That's where, well, actually I've seen it happen. Like that's where the circles are really needed is is middle school lunch tables. Uh, (laughs) Which ironically often in circles. (laughs) And so in addition to, you know, how phenomenal they'll be in hitting the streets, like just living amongst each other um, as a new way of being, uh, it, it is exciting to think of all those possibilities. And I remember being challenged to that understanding in that conversation with Zara of like, we kind of came into it being like, look at this, like, you know, abolitionist organizer training institute. And then being like, no, 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 no. This is about making people have this understanding, not about like equipping, you know, and if some of them go down that road, that's great. But like, this is about shifting human relationships, not about like seeding our organizations with the next group of staff members. You know, (laughs) It's really true. I love that. Yeah. So I want to take a couple minutes with the the risk of self-reflection and rumination uh, to to look at the work that we've done together over these last couple of years. Because in addition to Project Nia sunsetting and IC entering a chrysalis year, you know, we've been doing this show consistently for two years now. And it's been a really wonderful rhythm as part of our lives has like one given, I would say, the two of us so much in practice, but it's also really sharpened our methodology, 
our practice, our way of thinking about what it is we do, and has like been a launching pad for so many of the ideas that have enabled the other things. So the first thing I just want to say in that is I'm so grateful and appreciative. You know, you talked earlier, Miriam, about the trust that you put into collaborators Mm -hmm. and the trust in their ideas. And, you know, we just came to y'all with this as an idea of making a show out of it. And y'all just said, yeah, run with it. Let's do it. And it's been really an incredible, and in many ways, I think my favorite collaboration that I've ever had professionally in this work. Like, it's been so fun to build this practice together. And so the first thing is just the appreciation that y'all trusted us. And then also continued, you know, Eva has invested so much time and expertise and brilliance and care into keeping this this running and so so appreciative and we'll do more reflection you know in in our outro on that too but i'm wondering how you you know as someone who this is born out of a formation you created and then in many ways you handed it to us and said run with it what have you seen from the work that the four of us and andrew and the the constellation of people involved have done together that in addition to its impact for other people, like what has it made possible for you or, or what are you thinking about as that piece comes to a close too? Well, first of all, just immense gratitude. I'm so grateful that you all brought the idea. I'm really, really grateful that Eva was like, yes, let's do this. I think this is going to be great and put in so much time and like you said, care and energy into making this happen with you both. I felt really just excited that there was going to be another way to share the ideas of folks on the ground in their own voice, in their own narration of what they were doing. It's better to hear from people who are actually doing the work on the ground than it is to hear third hand what it is that the work they are doing means, whether it's like somebody else writing a book about it or somebody writing a report about these groups. But it was literally the version on the ground, you know, what was it, uh, James Baldwin wrote that piece report from occupied territory years ago when talking about Harlem and, and uh, uprisings. And, you know, I, I feel like this was report from the ground from people who are doing this work day to day to day. What an incredible opportunity and wonderful to hear them in their own words talking about this. This is invaluable. So what I feel is just it's a continuation of what I believe. And it kind of goes back to the point I was making about the person who was getting interviewed um, and said, like, you know, do your thing. Like, I trust both of you, you know, Damon and Daniel, around your skills, your abilities as people who are artists, are now broadcasters and and people in media, uh, you know, that you have these talents and skills. I knew that would match perfectly with being able to bring this project to fruition. I also have unending trust in Eva and Eva's ability and creative sense and just hardworkingness. Eva is one of the hardest workers I know and and will take a project from beginning to end and will try to figure it out and also isn't afraid of leaning into conflict or disagreement. And so I, I knew that this would work. Um, I just knew that whatever it was that was going to get created was going to be wonderful. And that is true. I, I listen to the podcast, like as soon as it comes out, I sometimes have gone back to listen to the same episode again, you know, a couple of weeks later, I'm like, what, you know, this person said something I thought was so interesting. And I'll go back. I'm a journaler. So 
I will go back and I'll write in my journal like a quote for somebody because I know that I'm going to think about that in a future thing that I don't know what that thing is going to be in the future, but it hit me at that time. And it's like, ooh, idea here. It was just generative, so generative for me. Um, I loved being able to also have some input on groups to feature because of, of some many groups that I have so much respect for um, that I, I think could, you know, teach us something. And that was absolutely validated. I learned something from every single episode. I think the moral of the story is you should cultivate relationships over time with people who have different skills than you do, but have the values in common. That's what matters more than anything, because then you can trust that whatever it is that they end up doing is not going to be horrible or it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be counter to what you are actually trying to do, what your political project might be in the world, right? Like you don't have to worry about it. And then you can go on and do your own work and then just like get these wonderful presents every month of these wonderful conversations that you get to listen to while you're up at 3 a.m. in the morning doing other work, you know? So I really have appreciated it. The learning is not even a learning. It's a reinforcing. Invest in your relationships with people. Make sure that you surround yourself with people who do things that you don't know how to do well and be excited that they have those skills. And then like lean into the values that you have in common and trust that those values are going to hold you all the way through. And if they don't, that you trust that you can come to them and be like, "Eh, that's not all right. We're not down with that. We need to do something different. Or what were you thinking on this point? To me, communication is the only thing that matters. It's why I go back to the point on a regular basis that I do not argue with strangers ever anywhere. Because I'm not trying to convince people who don't know anything about me and who I don't know the values of above anything. I am just trying to actually be in relationship with people. And those people that I'm in relationship with, those are the people that I'm going to invest in fighting with, arguing with, figuring out, because we have an understanding about what we're trying to do. And usually we're trying to preserve our relationship and that matters to me, you know? Yeah. I want to get to the root of this. This is like a a human thing. I I don't, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze, but there's something very similar to, you know, who cares? I'm not here to like be stuck in self-reflection and I'm not going to argue with strangers, right? Like there is a, a groundedness in this that's like looking in both directions of like, I'm not looking back or I'm not going to argue with my past self. They have nothing <laughs> to contribute. <laughs> and I'm not going to argue with folks who are uninterested in contributing or or opposed to contributing or not even aware of what to contribute to. I guess what I'm saying is, a, is just a focus that you offer when you teach, but I think you embody in how you show up and get like, there's such a, a commitment to the politic that I think it allows a lot of the the noise to fall down. And I think as folks are developing the politic through so much noise, it is hard to get that focus or hard to allow those strings to be cut, to not tunnel vision, but to keep the right perspective or orientation towards why we're doing all of this. You're basically saying that I'm old. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that was so not what I was saying. <laughs> no, no, I was saying you were no. wise and said old, old woman yells at cloud. <laughs> no, the exact opposite. The exact no, no, opposite. no, no, no. I, yeah, That's so funny. <laughs> I 100% hear you on this point. And it is, it, it comes from, I was not 
this person that I am now when I was in my 20s. I don't think I was this person that I am now in my early 30s. I think I came into myself around the same time I was starting Project Mia about 15 years ago, like came into my fullness of like not having my head on a swivel, just being like, I, I'm not in control of all these voices. I don't want to be in control of all these other voices. Who are my people? It's the Ella Baker question. And she didn't mean like, who is your necessarily the family you were born into, but like, who are your comrades? <laughs> who do you associate with? Who are you personally deciding you're accountable to? And who of that group knows that you are accountable to them? This is where I live. And that's what allows me to not give a damn about all of the noise that surrounds me. There are people who know nothing about me. They have never met me, but they have deep, deep lists of grievances against me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They couldn't tell you where I was born. They don't know anything. Yeah. They're just wait, waiting for Festivus. Yeah. They're like, I got my air agreement. Oh the list of grievances is this long list of like a, a big scroll, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know? Think about that. Think about how irrational that could be. Mm-hmm. And if you spent your time looking on a swivel and all these people who have something to say about you on a regular basis, you could not live, <laughs> let alone actually continue to do the work that you want to do in the world. One way that I know that people don't know anything about me, like it's a, a, a one moment to, to like gauge that people don't know a thing about me is when they assume that I delegate so much that I actually just show up to an event like and do the thing and leave and don't know that I'm always the first person that arrives at my events and I'm always the last person to leave, you know? Like always. And that's been the case wherever I go. And also that I, everywhere I go, I bring propaganda. <laughs> and snacks. Chair snacks and propaganda. Exactly. Those are my favorite things, literally. I love sitting down. <laughs> I love snacking. And I love propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, that. it's like, tell me you don't know anything about me by talking about me. It's like yeah. when you don't, when you know those things about me, then you actually know who I am because that's that's how I've always been. And it's like there is no Miriam concierge who goes around setting up the rooms and then taking them down and whatever. And I also will never ask people to do things I don't do myself. It's really important to make that happen. It doesn't matter what stage you are in your life. I'm always going to be putting the chairs in and putting the chairs away. And I'm always going to bring stickers, propaganda, posters, zines. So I think for me, and this, I'll tie this back to the ideas of experiments is if you spend all your time concerned and looking around at the people who know nothing about the project you're actually trying to do and frankly have no investment in it succeeding at all, you aren't going to be able to build anything that lasts and you will crumble under the pressure of listening to too many voices telling you too many things, but they don't know the values of your organization. They look at your organization from 100,000 feet here And they're here to tell you about how you're messing up on all these other fronts. Are you really messing up? If you're really doing evaluation, you're figuring out whether you're doing right by people within your organization. If you come down on the side that you're doing the best you can, 
and you're actually trying to build those relationships, what other people have to say about you who don't know anything about you or your organization can't matter more than what you know about your organization and the people who are directly in there doing that fight on a daily basis. People will drag you regardless. This is a drag people society. And it's in part because people are deeply disconnected from each other. They're disconnected from themselves. People are deeply endemically lonely. And human beings, we just love drama. So any opportunity to stir something up feels like excitement. And then there are also some real issues that need to be attended to by everybody. We all make mistakes. We all do things that we maybe aren't proud of, right? Maybe we were in a situation where we did something we didn't even recognize we hurt somebody. These are normal human kinds of reactions. But I always hear people screaming about accountability all the time, that word. I keep repeating this and people will be mad at me again for saying it. And I'm going to say it again. You cannot hold other people accountable without their consent to doing it. And secondly, no one is going to be held accountable for us by some external force if they don't agree they did anything wrong. Okay? Scream as much as you want about that. You can punish people because that's passive and you can do whatever the fuck you want on that. But you cannot scream that you're holding any strangers accountable for anything. Why? Why should they agree to be held accountable from somebody they have zero relationship with and don't care about? Also, there isn't just one side to anything. There are multiple sides to everything. So therefore, part of the work what we try to do in transformative justice is to get on the same page to agree that there was an issue that occurred and that we have a similar understanding of what that issue was. That's the basis through which we can actually, quote unquote, then hold people accountable because we're in relationship with them. We're in community with them. They've decided that they did something wrong to actually be held into account for and take responsibility for. And no matter what people want, which is a desperate need to be able to control other people, we don't control other people. We simply don't. We can barely control ourselves. All these groups that came on and talked all have challenges in their groups, are all trying to navigate that stuff on a regular basis. And we got to stop calling you to figure them out. I mean, <laughs> no, please, please. We created in it together just for that reason, so that I don't have to dance. I'm like, this is not even my work. Why are y'all yeah. calling me though? Really? There's no, there's no cell service in the chrysalis. Damon, can you please make a song called yeah. Self-Service in the Crystal? <laughs> For sure. sure. I can see the illustration. I got yeah. bars. We got no bars. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, so yeah. So I just, I, I, I feel like this is connected to the overall idea of like, you know, coming into your own to understand that you can't allow yourself to be drowned out by the noises of other people without knowing and being centered in your own understanding of what it is you are doing and what you're trying to do. That doesn't mean that you can't be called in, but you can only be called in by people who you think have your interests at heart, that they are not people who are there to, quote, throw you to the wolves. Who wants to be called in by a bunch of people who don't know how to act? I want to be called into your mess? Sorry, no, I'm not interested in that. Or people who think you're evil and then you're like, oh, I'm going to be called in by those people. You're not calling me in. 
you're not safe. You're not a person that I want to be in the same room with, let alone in relationship with, you know, people will be furious at this and they will disagree. And that's okay. Just add it to the scroll. They're going to want to hold you accountable for it. (laughs) You know, and I don't care that they're mad about it. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there I, you go. You can have, take that clip, by the way. I see you guys pulling the it's true. Well, I already got that. You know the drop. You know the Miriam drop. <laughs> it's just true. It's just true. It's just true. <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> I think I have one last prompt as we're as we're winding down. Really, what I'm hearing in all of this is the urge or the the push towards recognizing and building your choir. And I say that language intentionally because I want to prompt you. I don't think we've done it on mic. And if we have, I want to do it again. There was an anecdote you shared with Daniel and I. One of the first times that we were together after our first interview. um, I think it was when we were in Detroit at AMC. I thought it was at Lighthouse in in Hyde Park. But either way, a few few years ago, and I've told this story and paraphrased it sloppily (laughs) more times than I can count. Um, but it goes to an old story when you were doing housing organizing, I want to say in New York, um, and the notion of recognizing and appreciating who was there and this cliche about, we don't want to be singing to the choir, uh, that I think you, you rejected in a way that has really transformed the way we and I show up and do a lot of things. So I I want to talk about the importance of the choir, but also kind of let you in with the importance of finding and building your choir. Because I heard that one of your, for a little grapevine, I have, uh, we have our sources, uh, that one of your current rants right now is around folks finding friends and feeling too <laughs> alienated to do the work. So I'm trying to combine, if that's too much of a gumbo, you could just- But maybe we can start with what the story Yeah, was if you could tell us the story about, about the importance of the choir. So this is a, a story that I have told mostly just not not in like any sort of like public forums. But years ago, when I was young, I was like 15 or 16 years old. I um, was working as a volunteer for an organization in Harlem that did housing organizing. There was a person there, a man who it feels now looking back at it that he was so much older than he actually was at the time, but he was actually like in his twenties, like in his <laughs> like, you know, mid to late twenties. But to me at that time, this, he was like 90. This whole time. I thought he was this wise Baba. I know. Balding with gray hair and his walking cane and chewing stick who Not set you all. down. He's just a dude. Like in his late twenties, maybe I would, just, I would say at the time, I, I have to, I have to remember the exact age that he was but um i came into the the space where we had meetings and and i have at this point put in no work so it's like literally i just kind of show up to the meeting you know with my 16 year old self feeling really proud of myself i haven't helped build the meeting i haven't done anything but i walk in and immediately i i'm like oh it looks like the same people are here again. I could have just done that in my head and saved myself a lot of like potential grief and not been rude as hell. But I actually said the words out loud. Oh, looks like the same people are here again. And this man looked me in the eyes and he says at this time, don't you ever disrespect people like that again in my presence. 
because those folks you just insulted are people who show up every single month to fight for housing for themselves and for others who need it. And then he says, you should always celebrate the choir. I never forgot those words. Even though at the time I was mortified and embarrassed to be upbraided in that way, I know that I absolutely deserved it because I was a snot nose coming in in that way because I had put in zero work to show up to the meeting in the first place. And here I was saying, oh my God, here are the same ass people. And because I needed to be reminded that folks here who show up every single day need to actually be celebrated too. That constantly looking at who's not in the room and focusing all our attention there ignores the people who are the ones who are right there with us that we need to actually be uplifting and keeping track of and being decent to. Did I at the time uh, get any of that? No, I felt hot humiliation, which I totally covered up with anger. I left in a huff, right? I didn't actually internalize his words at that time. But over the years, as I started to actually organize in earnest, where I was actually doing door knocking, canvassing, having to bring people to meetings, this pre-social media, I started to understand 100% what he was talking about. That always, always, always celebrate the people who consistently show up. That you should never take for granted by looking over your shoulder at all the people who aren't in the room. And that we are all part of the choir. That we all have a role that it's actually not the responsibility of just one person to recruit every different type of person to show up in a meeting, event, or in a campaign, that one person can only recruit the people they know, and that then that means you should recruit those you know, and that you should celebrate the choir while doing the work to actually keep growing that choir. That is the ultimate goal. So why is it that I said, oh, the same people are here, but I didn't bring anybody to the meeting. I didn't do any work to get new people to come. We recruit within our networks. That means each of us has a role to play in making sure the people who we say we want in the room get in the room. I always look around sometimes when people make these suggestions about stuff, and I'm like, well, who's going to do that, though? (laughs) You know what I mean? Thank you for your suggestion. It would really be great if this existed. Yes! Yes, it would. It is the downfall of these spaces. And I'm sorry to say, I see this so much more with this generation of people where it's like somebody else ought to do this thing. And if they don't do it, they're the most evil person on the planet. And I'm like, what are you bringing to the table exactly here? You're not a consumer. You're not sitting back here and having somebody do concierge service activism. You mean to tell me you want to Uber Eats activism? (laughs) You need somebody here to like contact to bring you just the right flavor of people that make you comfortable in the space that you're in? No, there's no Uber Eats here. You have to go out and do the thing and bring the stuff in yourself. None of us is off the hook. He didn't go into all those parts with me, but it really was such a formative lesson for me. I never forgot it. Years later, um, he also taught me a, a thing that I wrote in Let This Radicalize You about the butterflies, about like constantly being seduced by people who have all the right language, all the right books, all the right looks, right? But they also never stay to like the end of the meeting to put away the chairs. And I learned so much from those experiences and from him. And un- unfortunately, he passed away from AIDS 
a few years later, but I got a chance to get to see him when he was sick and to thank him for all that he taught me and that I, even though I wasn't in a position to receive it at the time, I recognized how incredibly lucky I was that he invested in me at all and that he thought I was valuable enough to tell me the truth. And I'll never forget him. Yeah. I'm so grateful to him. He's taught me this and we've never met. And through you as a vessel has taught that lesson to so many people. So Ashe and deep gratitude and appreciation for that ancestral lesson that we continue to to receive through you. As we close out, I think I want to end with a version of the same question we asked all these other experiments, which was understanding that we're not giving a blueprint, um, but we are trying to give examples and entry points. You know, you just use this phrase of celebrate the choir while trying to grow it at the same time. And I think that that perfectly encapsulates what we've tried to do with the show over the last two years and what we're hoping that the film does. And so for someone who's interested in stepping into this kind of archiving, documenting, celebrating work, you know, similar in spirit to what we've done together, what would you want them to know to help shape, you know, a new experiment in this type of storytelling archive and celebration? Well, the first thing I want to say is how, again, grateful I am to all of you for this wonderful gift that you have given us, because this is something that, like you mentioned, is an archives of experiences of a, a particular moment in time that I think people will come back to over and over again over the years uh, to learn about what people in this moment were thinking about and how they were moving and what kinds of things they were doing. Um, and this is going to be so valuable. So thank you for that. And I would just say that I hope other people do similar projects in their own communities. And it doesn't have to be as elaborate or as time consuming, or you may not have all the skills that you need to do it, but go and find some people who you can work with, you know, who have the skills that you don't have so that you can document your own work in multiple ways. You all know I went to library school in the last few years. Shout out, buh, buh, buh. we got official librarian official here. Official librarian archivist. So Check I am excited, excited about that. And so this is my jam. I want our folks to tell their stories in multiple kinds of venues and ways because they're instructive, not just to others. They're instructive to you. While I'm not self-reflective myself in that kind of way, I do feel like going back and listening to the audio stories that have been coming about Project Nia, I've just learned so much that I didn't know either at the time and certainly didn't know before I listened to the interviews. So I feel like this is going to be something that's so, so important for our movements going forward. We need historical memory and we need historical memory coming directly from the people who were directly doing the work, unfiltered in that way. And this is a great way to have that historical memory unfiltered, even if it's edited or whatever. It's still the voices of the folks who uh, were sharing what they were doing in that moment. Material culture does matter. Yeah, I know that people love the internets and I know, but like paper is going to be the, long, the longest lasting technology we have actually. Um, all this stuff online is going to break down because it does immediately. I think you should look at stuff that you posted on your blog five years ago. It doesn't exist anymore if you didn't pay your blog fee. Like these are the things. Anyway, I might 
have me on to talk about archives and libraries another time. <laughs> of course. But I'm, of course. I'm obsessed with this point because I'm worried as hell that we're going to actually, the, the things that got made between 2008, 2008 and now, are we're not going to be able to access. They're on everybody's phone. They're on websites that are now defunct. The links don't work. All the photos that people have in the cloud somewhere that they haven't put anywhere in centralized places, we're going to lose so much more. And the thing <sighs> that remains is paper. Okay, <laughs> The shit that from, from 2,000 years ago that are still on scrolls, we aren't going to have that. All we're going to have is the grievances on the scrolls. <laughs> I mean, the grievances on the scrolls will be there forever. But you know what, Walt? Twitter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. That is definitely true. Yeah, no, that I, I would love to have. The, that is one of my like deep uh, similarly. I think it's critical for social movements. We need to really think about how we're documenting and um, historicizing and uh, preserving the documents of social movements in this moment. I keep thinking about all these young folks who've made some terrific things. I'm wondering where they're putting it so that when people come back in 50 years, they could still listen to the audio. I think this is very, very important. And I know this isn't the sexy thing that people want to think about, but that's how history gets written, y'all. Oh, we're here for this. documents. Daniel and this I- is our, This is our shit. We agonize about the Library of Alexandria on a monthly basis. Okay. Like, that, that still hurts us. We have not I gotten mean- over that. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. And I wasn't even there that yeah. day. You know? Yeah, but forget about Freedom Square. Yeah. Like the things I was well, there for. Yeah. Real, y'all. Like, what is going on with all that stuff? Anyway, it's invaluable, and I'm excited. Um, I'm excited, and I'm excited for you all next year taking the film on the road and getting to talk with people from some of the experiments in their own cities, um, so that they can also build up their choir and they can also work together to grow their communities on the ground. And so people can also hear from them what they've continued to do since those interviews and how it is that they've maybe taken what they listened to in the interview. And maybe that also informed new ideas for them. Maybe they listened to what they did and they were like, oh, we should change. We should shift. I hope that's true. I hope that um, what they are able to do is use this as a continual way to be able to improve. Again, constant evaluation for improvement. How are we going to do better from here? So I'm excited. This is one of the best projects I've been involved in. So I'm thrilled about that. And um, thank you for having me to come back on and chat about all things. You feel free to cut out my rants about accountability. That's you know, that's no, just not going anywhere. front and center, baby. They go in the damn place. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, thanks for having me. <laughs> of course, of course. The the closer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and that's it. We're getting no. robes. I'm, I'm putting we're getting the, what? We're getting robes. All this robes? choir talk. We're gonna show oh, to yeah, every yeah. city <laughs> robed out. We're gonna give folks robes. <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> um, Miriam, thank you again. Thank you so and, much. And uh Look forward to continuing to grow and reshape and make things and be in relation together. Yes. Looking forward to it. Bring me any ideas in the future. I'm always excited and down for doing whatever with you all. So, yeah.
All right. What a gift it is to commune and be in conversation with the one and only Mariam Kaba. MK left us with so many jewels to not end, but come to some sort of conclusion in this iteration of the Project One Million Experiments. And to do it right, we have to bring back our partner in decriminalization and a leader at interrupting criminalization, the one, the only, Eva Nagal. Hey, Eva. Hey, y'all. So what was sticking out for you from this wonderful conversation with Miriam? For the record, this is the peer review. Just need to get that in. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we, we are reviewing with our peers. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. We were chatting a little bit after, you know, we recorded the conversation with Miriam. And I told you that the conversation had, I like, catapulted me into my late 30s. I was like, I feel like I just like (laughs) grew up a little bit during that, you know? I mean, part of this is because Miriam has been such a fixture in my life, including my youth. Um, But I think that the one thing, like I really just want to to highlight the the conclusion in, in my experimentation over the course of this podcast. I hope that this podcast emboldens our listeners. I hope that it generates boldness. That's what Dean says. Because it has for me. I really hope that you can walk away from this podcast if you're not starting your your block hub organization infrastructure magic, that you can walk away from this podcast noticing more, having more conversations, and most importantly, caring about people. I'll say one more thing. We Miriam and I gave this talk this past week, and there was a very smart audience member question. To break it down, I mean, this person was essentially like, there are some really obvious solutions to these problems. And I don't understand, like, (laughs) I don't understand why we're not implementing these solutions. And, you know, Miriam laughed and Miriam says, we don't implement these solutions because we don't care about people. We don't care about poor people in this country. We don't care about people. And so I, I want this to stand, all of these episodes to stand as this testament to people who care about people. This is what happens when you care about people. And as I've gotten to sit in the lab with you all over the course of 20 episodes of talking to people who care, I've become a more caring person. Since we've sat in this lab, I have talked to the people on my block. I have changed my behaviors to all of the houseless people around my neighborhood. It has changed my life. It has opened my eyes. And my eyes were already open, but I'm saying there is always more you can do. There are always conversations you can stop for. You know, even us, these people who are so in the thick of the work, like we can slow it down too. And we can be attentive to the relationships and the people around us. And what good timing because those relationships and that attentiveness has been what's gotten me through these past couple of months. And so thank you to Miriam 20 or 10 years ago. My math is so bad, the scientist that I am. Thank you to you all for these past 20 episodes. And you know, to our listeners, I again, I just hope that this renews you, that it generates boldness, that you feel like you click off this episode, you turn off that film, and you go have a conversation about it. Wow. I was so, so powerful and so true. And I'm, I'm grateful to you. And specifically, I'm grateful to all of the experiments and all the folks who shared their story as they're figuring things out or have not figured things out in a way that is really vulnerable to push us all further in the not only the type of work, but the type of care and relationship that we need to build. This is such a rich tradition, um, you know, 
like you said, like the eyes have been open. I was they were never closed, but always realize that these lids can like expand even further. Um, and similarly, more than being a good activist or artist or media maker, being in right relationship with humanity and with life, uh, for me is my conclusion, you know? And so that, that feels like what Miriam is pushing us for and what the hypothesis and conclusion was about is find your people, do the work, and the work is caring for each other and creating more space for more types of care. Be the person who brings the snacks, be the person who does the dishes, be the person who puts up the chairs and, you know, take that energy and do big things. You can take that energy and start with small things. I mean, I think that's part of what I've loved about coming to these conclusions through these 20 conversations is talking to people operating at all of these different scales in their work and at different points in the like timeline of their work. I'm glad that we got to capture some of this Project Nia history mm-hmm, for the mm-hmm, archive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, going all the way back to the Friendly Fridge being in there, like, you know, kind of introductory phases to so many of the experiments that have had to pivot and rethink, like... Mm-hmm. Detroit safety team going from just a response network for a conference to then holding the city to then the decision like, man, maybe we shouldn't do this conference and focus on the people in the city, right? Like, yeah. And actually the conclusion that almost all of them came to in these moments was to figure out how to be in more right relationship and in more care with each other. The evidence we've gathered through documenting these experiments speaks to that, not just to be better people, but also as a part of what actually works to transform things. It's, it's great to have that idea and it's great to have the like living proof of that side by side. And it's a thing that I think in our heart of hearts, we all know already, you know? Anything else that we want to touch on before we go? I just want to say it's it's been a, been an honor to harmonize with y'all. You know, in, in the lesson that Miriam has taught, and we got her to share again uh, this notion of appreciating the choir. So, to you tens of thousands of people out there, we we got matching robes now. Uh, to all the experiments that were not highlighted and covered, we still see you and know that you are there, and hope to find you in the ways that you deserve to be found. Um, and yeah, you know, we we all got to hit those notes. So figure out which section you in. <laughs> are you gonna take the low end or the high end? But we're going to do this in concert and do this in harmony. That was good. That was we good. can extend a metaphor. Uh, I won't jinx it. Let's end it there. <laughs> Folks, go back in the archive, listen to the episodes you haven't listened to, get in tune with the work at millionexperiments.com, at Interrupt Crim on all socials for IC. We're at Respare Media, respiremedia.com, and ergoradio.com. Bring us to your space. Let's keep talking. Let's keep building. Let's keep experimenting together. Thank you for being part of this experiment with us. And as always, much love to the people. Peace. Woohoo!